Welcome to Africa's number one health and wellness produced podcast. We've just moved into the top 1% of all podcasts worldwide. So thank you for all your support and reviews. It helps spread the news of health, wellness and hope and gets incredible guests on the show. If there's one physician I listen to and trust, it's Dr. David Brownstein. I followed his guidance and introduced protocols into my own practice like hydrogen peroxide to game-changing effects. So I wanted to talk to him again a year later and discuss where his thinking is and what novel ideas and therapies he is working with now that could again make a game-changing effect in my life and my work. Dr. David Brownstein, medical doctor, is a board-certified family physician who utilizes the best of conventional and alternative therapies. He has authored 16 books including iodine, why you need it, why you can't live without it, and his newest book, A Holistic Approach to Viruses. Here are my three big takeaways. Number one, how important movement is to your health and how it helped Dr. Brownstein's patients with their immunities through the pandemic. Number two, the biological mechanism of iodine and why we need it more than ever, yet there is less than ever in nature. Number three, Dr. Brownstein's view on fibrinogen, ferritin, iron, zinc, and copper. Today's show is sponsored by FlexBeam, the best red light therapy device I've ever used. I use it almost every day on my body, joint pain, muscle recovery, and anything that is just really sore, even stomach pain or indigestion. Most valuable part about it, it's portable. Strap it on and it goes wherever you go. So go and check it out on my website, madetothrive.co.za for a special discount no matter where you live in the world. Please send me your feedback and questions to either connect at madetothrive.co.za on my WhatsApp direct line 064-871-0308. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Steve Stavs, Africa's pro and health futurist. And this is the Made to Thrive show. Hello, Made to Thrive Nation. I've got a return guest. Uh, you know, I think of Dr. David Brownstein every single day of my life. Why? Because I dispense hydrogen peroxide nebulization bags every single day. I do IV hydrogen peroxide every single day in the practice. It has been a game changer. It literally has been a game changer. And so I'm grateful to this man because he's a pioneer. He's courageous. You know, he's board certified and he's a family physician. He's written 16 books. Highly recommend that we go to your his website and we'll put a link to the first episode with him. But it is an honor and a privilege always to speak to him because he's a wealth of wisdom, a very humble man, but I think he has got the skills and the tools to really treat almost any disease. And I, and I say that with full confidence as a physician for the last 24 years. Welcome back to the show, Dr. David Brownstein. Wow. Thank you for having me. That was some introduction. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about peroxide because it's every single day in my practice as well. And it's a really cool therapy, which we could talk about. Brilliant. Uh, now, Dr. Brownstein, you've been in practice over 30 years. I think you're two children of physicians. You've got a wealth of experience. I really want you to sort of just talk about things that are interesting you with regards to the immune system, because I mean, this immune system is so complex. I think there's so many new things that are happening. And, and there's, there's the, always the old foundational principles that we return to. But tell us a little bit about what you've learned in the last three years, obviously with the coronavirus and, and you having a lot of experience in holistic medicine. In fact, those that are listening, Dr. Brownstein is one of the earliest pioneers in holistic medicine as an integrative physician. And so a lot of the things that have been done has because he was brave and he had a lot of courage to do them. So tell us a little bit about what's happened over the last few years. Well, um, 
you know, when, when COVID started, um, you know, we all saw the TV. We saw what was going on in Europe. And then, um, um, you know, we saw those hospital wards in Italy. I think that's the first one we were all looking at. And, you know, the the, the refrigerator trucks lined up to, to gather the bodies. And, you know, the, the modeling, I'm not sure what the modeling in South Africa was, but the modeling in, uh, in America was miserable. You know, by the end of 2020, we were predicted to have over something like 1.3 to 1.5 million deaths. Um, and I believe over three, some at three million infections. I, you know, don't quite remember the exact numbers, but you know, we didn't flinch in our practice. Um, we, when the governor of our state closed everything down and said only essential businesses stayed open, told my partners, "I'm essential. You're essential. We're we're staying open." And you know, we we all agreed on that. And you know, we felt like. We're, where are the patients going to have to go? There's going to be nothing open except for grocery stores, liquor stores, and emergency rooms. Um, and we weren't going to abandon them. And I'm so disappointed in my colleagues who closed their offices and everyone went virtual um, out of this whole fear of, of a viral illness that, you know, look, I was not to say I wasn't fearful. I was fearful too. You know, I, Used to have a, I have asthma. Um, used to be a severe case of asthma. Used to have inhalers and go on steroids. Go to the emergency room every once in a while. And you know, through adopting a holistic lifestyle, cleaning up my diet, and um, mostly cleaning up my diet, I think that my asthma is pretty much gone. Um, I don't feel it much. And but I have asthma. I have scoliosis with a sixty degree curve. I have lung involvement um, from that scoliosis. Um, and I have an immune system disorder. I have no, I have no IgA. One percent of the population has no IgA. Wow. I'm in the wrong profession. I shouldn't be exposed to all these sick people with viruses. But that's what I chose, and I wasn't running. And it's not that I'm, you know, it's not that I'm consider myself a brave person at all. I'm not. But I took an oath. I've always wanted to be a doctor, and I my oath was to treat sick people. When when AIDS when the AIDS crisis was around, I was in med school, and. Um, AIDS exploded when I was in med school and in my residency. And I remember vividly attending physicians and resident physicians and, you know, shying away from the AIDS rooms. And, you know, we, they weren't going to, they weren't contact with those people. I just didn't worry. I didn't think about it back then. I wasn't, you know, mm -hmm. my story is in that. I remember as a med student on the call at night, patient needed a blood draw. So I'm walking in the room with, um, little Tupperware thing with all the, the blood draw tubes in there and, you know, the equipment I needed. And my fellow student stops me, he's on my team, and he says, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm going to draw the, this blood work. And he said, patient's got AIDS. I'm like, I know what the patient has. You know, I'm taking, you know, he's on my, I was one following him. Mm -hmm. And I said, he needs his blood drawn. He goes, I wouldn't, he goes, I wouldn't do that. And I said to him, look, I'm not going to have sex with him and I'm not, I'm hopefully not going to poke myself and I'll be very careful and not poke myself. But I said, he needs his blood drawn. He goes, I'd wait for the morning if a phlebotomy team do it. And I'm like, well, he needs it tonight. And I didn't think about it. And, you know, I, I, I remember back then and I didn't, you know, that was 30 years ago, but I remember back then that there were attendings who wouldn't touch these AIDS patients. They wouldn't, you know, they, they keep a distance in the room and do as little as they could. And, um, you know, we, we passed through that and, I didn't 
really think about it until this crisis came. And then the same thing happens again. You know, don't call my feeling is don't go into medicine if you're not going to treat sick people. And um, so when, when this, when this COVID-19 thing came around, I told my staff, you know, look, we have so many treatments available for viruses. Conventional medicine doesn't have much, but holistic medicine's got a lot. And the, the reason they have a lot is they know how to use things that support the immune system in times of distress. And, you know, you, you mentioned the immune system, you know, simple things, vitamin C, vitamin A, vitamin D, iodine, but um, the cleaning up the diet, you know, those of us that truly are holistic practitioners, we, we breathe this, we eat it, we live it, we dream it, you know, and, and we study it. And um, so when, you know, in, in meeting with my staff, when the staff was like, we need to close the office, you know, state's closing down. I'm like, I'm not closing this office. I said, nobody has to work with me. I'll do what I can do alone. But I would I'd like help if people will stay. And if you don't want to stay, it's okay. No one's job's at risk. I, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen. Nobody knew. And I was as scared as the rest of them. But I thought we were nimble enough in our practice that we knew how to treat viral infections. We've been treating flu and flu-like illnesses for 30, well, back then, 25 years or so. And our patients weren't going to the hospital. They weren't dying at anywhere near the reported rates. And one-third of those infections were invariably coronavirus infections. We didn't test for it, but that's what's reported every year. And I thought, what's this thing going to be any different for? You know, it's uh, it should respond like, unless it's, you know, some dastardly thing out there. And if it is, then we're all going to be in trouble anyways. But I thought, I said, look, if our therapy doesn't work, and we had a, we had a viral protocol, we'll come up with one. And I, you know, the first week when we started treating people with it, I don't think I slept. You know, I, I don't know, wasn't much, maybe a couple hours a night. And I was worried, you know, I was calling people every day and I pretty much still call people every day with who get sick with this. But I was calling people every day and worrying, you know, are, are we going to be able to do this and are they going to die? And um, am I going to die? And um, about a week into this, 10 days into this, I remember, you know, we were working late at night again and me and my partner were running inside getting stuff and said to him, you know what, we got this. I think we I think we got this. I think we're, the patients are improving. Pulse axes are coming up, just like just like with other flu-like illnesses over the years. So, um, I think that holistic medicine has a lot to offer, and um, and holistic holistic medicine still has a lot to offer. And the um, the best therapy, the single best therapy of everything we've done during this crisis, is how you started this interview off. It's hydrogen peroxide. I those nebulized peroxide, nebulized combination of nebulized peroxide and iodine was the coolest thing I've seen through this therapy. Um, people with these couldn't breathe, their pulse axes, 70s and 80s. They start nebulizing peroxide, usually with the second dose. They Their lungs start to open up. They start to feel better. They all told me this. I heard this story over and over and over for three years, still hearing it today. Luckily, not as much today because people aren't as sick as they were three years ago. Mm -hmm. But I'm interested in you being in South Africa since Africa as a continent was... I don't know, spared isn't quite the right word, but um, you don't see a lot of terrible news coming out of Africa for COVID. So how, how did South Africa fare through this crisis? I think fairly well. You know, I think if you look at the, the data, it was nothing like the Western countries. And I mean, I just think of people that were living in, you know, these shacks with 
uh, aluminium, you know, covering and right next to each other. There was no social distancing. There was no hygiene. You know, a lot of the population here is just on living third world. They don't have like available water or sanitation and they weren't dropping like flies like they like presumed it would be. So they had a robust, like almost, you know, uh, immunity that people were not expecting. They were saying if it was goes through these townships or these communities, it right. you know, just caused death. It didn't happen at all. So I think the numbers and looking at an organization of uh, called Panda with Nick Hudson and many people that have joined that organization, the numbers were significantly better than the rest of the world. And so if you look back, uh, you know, I just think it's this mass formation psychosis, you know, that's been spoken about, this fear paradigm, and obviously the government bought into that and there was lockdowns. But, uh, you know... So before you... Let me ask you one question. So did people get sick with a viral illness? During the last three years, with this with this illness, do you think they got sick with COVID with SARS CoV two? I think they did. I think they then, did. Then you're you're 100 right on this whole fear thing. Yeah. Um, and you know what that can do to the immune system and just the destructive capabilities of it. And you know, you think about people living in Africa, like you said, you know, that they're going to the bathroom outside, they're not washing their hands, they're living in huts, they're living in. They're, barely got shoe coverings and and um you know i mean my god look at look at the us we spend uh 20% of our gnp on healthcare yeah and we spent trillions of dollars on this thing and we were the worst of all the western countries and yeah. you know what a what a disaster you know after especially after what you just reported to me yeah and i mean it's, it's you know i think it's ongoing is this still some significant damage that's happened to a lot of people just because of this sort of fear mongering that went on out there. And uh, I'm hopefully a lot of these, and, and it's not that we want to now pursue the legal route, but people have to become accountable for their actions and what they did. And so I'm just hoping that it's, it's very fruitful from um, organizations like Panda, even yourself. I've been listening to uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., what's happening in the States. And I think we do need to hold you know, some type of uh, accountability with these people with regards to what was done. I would agree with that. And, um, you know, it's um, the fear that was here was just unbelievable. I, I'm, I'm just so disappointed in my profession that, you know, we allowed this to mm. to take hold and there was no one to speak for the patients. There was nobody standing up. There was a few of us, but yeah. there was no one in power no one in Washington, D.C., no one in the AMA, no one in our organizations to speak up and say, hey, maybe there is another side to this. Maybe we should debate this. Maybe we should talk about this. Maybe we should study this. Maybe we should study whether masks work or not versus just telling everybody they should mask. And maybe we should have some randomized controlled trials on whatever, you know, washing hands, masking, you know, yeah. eating good food or whatever it is. Mm. And none of that happened from the from the powers that be here. And you know, we paid a deep price for that and we're still paying a deep price for it. And, um, but, you know, I can tell you, um, Robert F. Kennedy has a great message. Um, I think, I, I do feel the winds have changed here and I do feel people have got the fog come up, you know, their eyes have cleared of the fog a little bit, a lot of them. And I think people are angry right now and they're looking for, they're looking for someone to, to help them and to guide them and to change this. And I, I think that that can happen. I, so one of the first times I felt like the uh, um, 
the wind blowing in the right direction for a change. And that started a few months ago. And I, I do think that um, if we can get our message across that, you know, we can we can make great strides in that. Brilliant. And I think that's sort of the political, you know, economic uh, sort of agenda that uh, governments had and organizations had and big farmer had. But I want to talk about the details in your life and in your practice, because I'm sure you've picked up things and noticed things. We've spoken about hydrogen peroxide and iodine in the last uh, episode and how powerful that is and, you know, using IVs that are available to some people. But anything that you've learned about the immune system or any techniques or any products from natural compounds to herbs to Chinese medicine or anything that you've sort of thought, hang on, this has really got some traction. It's helped a lot of people. Well, you know, um, it's interesting. In, in, in conventional medicine, you've got all these expensive drugs you could use or, you know, these expensive therapies. In holistic medicine, there's supplements you can buy and you can, you know, but really in thinking about the last three years, you know, when, when, when COVID started, I was focused, you know, I, I was fearful at the beginning too. So, you know, I would, you know, we kept our viral protocol, which I talked to you about last time, which we can talk about a little bit more if you want. But it was high dose vitamins, A, C, D, and iodine orally and nebulized hydrogen peroxide and iodine. And if people needed it, IVs, vitamin C, and hydrogen peroxide with ozone shots. And um, it was the same viral therapy we've used for close to three decades and, you know, proved to be very effective. But one of the things with COVID that really struck me, there were, there were two things that struck me. And I've known this, but it just kind of was like slapping me in the face over and over during this crisis. One was people need to move. They can't lie in bed. As sick as they feel, if they, you know, when, when in the U.S., when um, people got COVID and they were hospitalized, one of the reasons we ventilated so many people, I think, you know, was doctors were, you know, look, I don't think doctors, I think doctors are trying the best they could do, whether they're conventional or holistic. So doctors ventilated people to try and control the airways when people are having trouble breathing. You know, we all know now that the original ventilator settings were a disaster. And, you know, if you got ventilated in 2020, early 2020, there was an over an 80% chance you were going to die from COVID from the wrong ventilator settings. And really the wrong, we shouldn't have been ventilating so many people. We realized that later. But I also think that part of the reason we were ventilating so many people was it was it, it controlled the airways, it controlled the secretions of COVID, and it made it safer for the healthcare personnel. So if they had them in a closed system with a um, mm. ventilator machine, um, they weren't the healthcare staff wasn't at risk with it. And um, where am I going with that? What, what did you 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 asked me? Um, yeah, what did you learn? I mean, I think. Oh, what have I learned? So here, here's what I learned. Um, those people that were ventilated were basically lying in bed. And it took us a while to realize, hey, maybe if we flip them over onto their stomach, they might do a little bit better. When we lay them on the back, they get fluid in their lungs. Fluid doesn't move. They're more likely to get pneumonia. So we lay them on their stomach. Well, you know, at the beginning of the crisis, I wasn't telling people who were sick to, you know, I was using the word exercise. I mean, I'm not, you know, of course, when you're sick, you're not going to a gym and you're not going to go do push-ups and sit-ups and things, but you can still walk a little bit, walk even inside your house, mm -hmm. you know, in a circle around your living room or, you know, from your from your kitchen to your living room or something. Um, and if you're in a one-room little hut, you can walk circles and circle in your hut, you know, but um, 
when when they started flipping people from the back to the front and reporting that there was some better outcomes with that, I immediately started telling my patients who were sick with COVID, you got to get out of bed. You can't lie in bed. I don't care if you can walk 10 steps, you walk 10 steps and then you go back to bed. And then next time, try and walk 11 steps and so on, you know, 12 and then 13 and so on and so on. And then when you got better, you could start walking outside a little bit. And if, if they weren't, if they weren't sick enough, or if I guess if they were not terribly sick, I, you know, I told them you got to walk outside a little bit. If it's five steps outside, it's fine. But, you know, our human body was not made to lie in bed all day and the lungs get filled with fluid. The lungs can't clear the secretions. And so I, when we flipped people over with the, with the um, ventilator on, I immediately started telling my patients, you got to walk. And that got them better. And that, that was really, that was really something you could see. And when he did, when he did blood count testing and, and specific immune system testing, I could tell the people who were more active than that. And because they had better counts. Um, I had a nurse who I saw in the office, she had sarcoidosis with lung involvement and then got COVID. So, and she had sarcoidosis bilaterally. She had severe scarring of her lungs going into a COVID illness. So she had a big comorbid condition. She came into my office with her husband and she was really struggling to breathe. Pulse ox was around 70. I mean, you know, I looked at her, did the pulse ox, listened to her lungs and said, look, you got to go to the hospital. And I said, I told her, we don't want to ventilate you. I don't want you ventilated if you don't need to, but I think you're going to need a, a rebreather mask on with high flow oxygen. So I called down the air and told him I was sending her over there. And I said to her, you got to get out of bed. I said, I don't care how bad you, they're not going to come in. Once they, once they put this rebreather or ventilate you, they, they ain't coming in the room except for the bare minimum, whatever they're, you know, take your vitals maybe once or twice a day. And that's it. So they put a rebreather on her. Gave her my cell phone and she's calling me. You know, it's hard to hear her through this rebreather. It's like talking to Darth Vader type person or something. And, um, you know, she was scared. She said, no one's coming in. She goes, the only thing they do is bring in food um, a couple times a day and they leave. And, you know, that's it. And they don't change her sheets. They don't change her gown. They, don't change her. They don't weigh her. They don't listen to her. A doc- I said, when's the last time, you know, a couple days in there, I'm like, when's the last time you saw a doctor? She doesn't know. Doctors aren't coming in. People are coming in to put the food in there. So the nurses barely come in. So I said, you got to get out of bed. And I, every time I talked to her from the first day she was there, I'm like, she goes, I'm on a tether. And she you know, shows me with her phone, you know, where the tether is. And I'm like, then stand next to that thing with the tether and just stand. So she started doing that. And then the next day I called her and I said, look, tell them to put a longer, longer leash on you. They can just lengthen the cord. And so took, of course, a day or two for them to do that, but they did it. Now she could, with the rebreather on, get out of bed because she still needed it. Yeah. And she take, I remember she said I'd walk circles around the bed and I try and not get tangled in the, in the thing. And she started, and I said, start doing knee bends. And she started knee bends and then. She started being able to take the mask off, walk a little further in the room. But she said, she told me she was in that room for eight days before they changed her sheets, before they changed her gown, before they gave her a bath. And um, part of it was with this patient, she wasn't vaccinated. This was after the vaccine came out. And they were really pissed that she wasn't vaccinated. And they she felt like they were punishing her. Yeah. Um, so she told me when she got out of the hospital and came to me, she was in the hospital maybe nine or 10 days, 
that um, um, if she didn't get out of bed, she felt like she would have suffocated to death, that that really seemed to help her each time she did it. And, um, you know, the, the other interesting story with her was they, she's in the hospital. You know, she's an RN. You know, she's not breathing and she's not feeling good, but she she's tough. This is a tough one. And she's smart. And so gave her my cell phone. So she calls me up and says, or texts me and says, they want to give me monopurifier. What do you think? So I said, the big study in New England Journal of Medicine showed it wasn't very helpful against COVID. So I pulled the study up on my phone. I cut out, I was very proud of myself. I was able to actually do this without my children helping me. I cut out the conclusion and circled in red where it said there's no difference between uh, treated and untreated patients, you know, with in regards to to um, severe outcomes or something like that. Basically, there's no difference. And um, so I said, show them. So she said, first doctor comes in, shows him on the phone, turns around and walks out. The, the attending comes in next. That was a resident. She shows him on the phone. He walks out. The infectious disease doctor comes in. He walks out. The pulmonary doctor comes in, shows them the same thing. They don't say anything. They just read it, turn, give her the phone back, and leave. And that was it. After that, no one came in a room. No one. That was the first day she was in there, and mm-hmm. she refused it. And she just did the. She just did a non rebreather. And I said, "You need, you need high flow oxygen. You need some rest. And you, you know, you need some you need to get out of bed. Yeah, and uh, that's what she needed. And she, you know, she did fine with it. And says, of course, now she says she has PTSD from the hospital, and you know, which I don't blame her. And and um. Um, you know, it was, it, and she wrote a letter and, you know, of course they didn't hear anything afterwards, but yeah. that's the situation we were in here with this. And, you know, her story is very common with, you know, just, just a lack of care and, you know, just, and, um, the fear everybody had, and, you know, no one wanted to, uh, get sick from COVID. And, you know, my feeling is we're physicians, you know what, we shouldn't have been afraid AIDS patients were there. And we shouldn't be afraid when people have pneumonia. We shouldn't be afraid when people have COVID. It's, it is what it is. And we, we chose this profession. Um, you know, Either way, the profession chose us or we chose it, but we're yeah. there and it's our job and that's what you do and that's what you took an oath for. Yeah, that's very brave. And that's why I sort of I really honor and respect you because I think that's what you did. And you were treating you know, patients in the car park. You never said no, stuck to your protocol stuck to your gun. So well done to you. And so the first thing you can say, and if we summarize that is movement, whether you can stand, whether you can move, it's pretty important. And even if you can move or stand outside and importance of that and getting some vitamin D and getting sunlight into your eyes and sitting, just just breathing outside, you know, just, just, and it helps dissipate some anxiety, helps to take that fear level down. And, you know, that doesn't cost anything. And, the, the second thing like that that came to me was um, I didn't do this at first because I, I was just so focused on this fear and like, are they going to live and we got to do this and, you know, we got to. And the, when I came to this really quickly into it was I told people you can't have any sugar, nothing when you're sick. You shouldn't have any refined sugar anyways, but yeah. can't have any refined sugar when you're sick. And, you know, studies show uh, studies shown that it paralyzes the white blood cells for up to five hours, and it feeds can you know yeast infections and um, other bad bugs, and you know no sugar. So this this nurse in the hospital 
calling me and she says, look at the food they're sending me. And she takes a picture of the plate and there's jello, which is, you know, how much sugar is in that plate of jello? I don't even know. There, there's like a cookie for dessert. And I'm telling her, just don't eat that stuff. And have your, how about we have your husband drop off some food for you? And which he did. Yeah. And they brought it up to her, you know, in a bag and, you know, got it close enough to the bed where she could get to it. And she, that's what she primarily ate was what he brought her. And, you know, he brought her protein and, you know, good food and, you know, no sugar. And so I started quickly into this telling people when they were sick, look, you got a movement, you got to move. Number one, you got to keep sugar totally out of your diet. Number two. And the third thing that, that really came forward that doesn't cost you much is they got to stay hydrated. And I would say dehydration was as big a factor as sending people to the hospital for this thing than as pulmonary congestion and you know low pulse ox and they couldn't breathe things. But dehydration exacerbated that, exacerbated slash caused, well, it didn't cause it because the virus was there, but exacerbated that whole situation and made it nearly impossible to treat if they were dehydrated in those car parking lot things you talked about. Cause at the beginning we didn't bring people in the office. We just treated them outside. And you know, it was in March in Michigan and Northern, Northern part of the U S and, you know, we got snow coming down. We got ice, we got 30, 28 degree weather. And um, we would hang these bags of saline outside the car and poles and we would just, we were masters of putting IVs in the the hands, you know, these little little things in the hands to, okay. and they'd hang their hands out the car door, they'd roll the window down, and we'd just drip the IV in. The one, the one problem we had, which we never really solved on this one, was, it, especially on those cold nights and, you know, or the cold days, that bag would get cold, yeah. and they would get cold, and they could be freezing in the car because they got this cold, so the heat would be pumping on the car, yeah. and... Eventually, we started telling people, bring blankets and, you know, heating pads if you can, if you can plug them in the car. And um, we never really solved that issue. But, that, you know, what's to solve with that one? And um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, keeping people hydrated. So I would tell people, you got to drink water and salt. You got to keep your electrolytes up with the salt. And you got to drink water to keep hydrated. And, um, you know, no caffeine that dehydrates you, especially when you're sick. And, you know, at least half your body weight in ounces in water. So if they weigh 200 pounds, um, 100 ounces of water. Um, they weigh 75 kilos, maybe 100, what is that, 150, 160 pounds, yeah. maybe 80 ounces of water. Um, and um, they got to have salt in every bit of water that they're drinking to keep the electrolytes up. Because otherwise they start cramping and they their lung secretions get thicker, you know, and they get harder harder breathing problems with it and their brain gets dehydrated and they can't think clearly. I mean, we, we would see people come in, not only could they not breathe, they were dehydrated. So they're talking goofy. Um, and, you know, as this bag of saline, you know, we would put the biggest catheter we could put in them and we would just wide open it. And literally on a, on a liter bag of saline, maybe, 100 cc's, 200 cc's, what, what is that? Uh, two glasses of water, maybe two or three glasses of water, you know, coming in mm. with salt water coming into them. They start to perk up and their brain starts to, and their color changes from pale and pasty to pink and their mm -hmm. brain starts working and they, they stop being goofy. Um, this is particularly true with old people and, and old people become dehydrated really fast anyways mm -hmm. when they get sick. 
But, you know, I guess if I'm going to tell listeners really three things you can focus on, especially with old people, you know, when they get sick is number one, they got to get out of bed, even just to stand. If they can't just stand with them or do knee bends or, you know, sit in a chair and do knee bends and and leg bends. You know, that's why I told that patient, I said, tell him to get you in a chair because she said, I can't walk. I'm like, fine, stand outside your bed. I'm afraid I'm going to fall and sit on the, I told her, sit on the edge of the bed and move your legs up and down. As much, but if that's all you can do, and she said no one would come in, so she didn't want to stand the first day. So I said, just sit on the bed, move your legs up and down. And I said, if you're not sleeping, you should be on the edge of the bed moving your legs. Yeah. And um, so first day, that's what she was doing with it. And it was just movement. So those three things that don't cost much money is the movement, um, the drinking water. And no sugar. Um, no sugar, no sugar, no sugar in the diet. And mm. those three things help so many people. And, um, you know, that's what, that's that I would tell you, that's the big thing I learned that, you know, we can, as doctors, we can focus on, um, you know, it's, it's the old saying, you can't see the forest through the trees. You know, you can see, do a hydrogen peroxide IV, take some vitamin C, take some vitamin A, but there's a whole forest there yeah. of needs support too. And um, just doing those three things can really help people for any illness and also keep it from getting that ill when you get sick. Mm-hmm. So I don't think th- those three things should be done continually anyways. Hi, I'm made to Thrive Nation. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you haven't already, please rate and review the show as this helps me get this cutting edge health info into more people's minds and hearts. Also, I'm building a radical health community on Instagram and LinkedIn. So I would so appreciate your support and send me a DM with any feedback or advice. My handle is Steve Stavs. Thanks again, and now back to the show. Let me dive a bit deeper, because in terms of what I've found, I'd love to get your perspective, is having a look at the thickness of people's blood. You know, we saw this post-COVID. I, I didn't pick it up early, but looking at fibrinogen, there's a key marker now, and uh, I'm really working on that during, using serapeptase and using natokinase because i just know the thicker the your blood is I, I think and i don't know what the research is i don't know what your experience is but the thicker your blood is i think your immune system is going to struggle more post-covid and post-vaccine both of them i just saw fibrinogen just increase dramatically i i'm seeing patients in their 60s and 70s having a double you know amount of fibrinogen that they do in their blood i mean i don't know what the units are but the the range here is 1.8 to 3.5 i don't know if it's the same in the u.s and i realized keeping patients more at the two level mark they were coming in with five or six on a fibrinogen level and I think that's what's caused a lot of the clotting now, the thrombosis, the thromboses that are happening, the emboli that are happening. What's your view? Because, I mean, we use high, um, a lot of amounts of EPA, DHA to try and thin the blood, looking at uh, products like the serapeptase and the natokinase. What's your view on fibrinogen and the thickness of people's blood? We saw the same thing, 100%. And um, um, we also checked D-dimer levels, quantitative D-dimer levels. And those people who are high in those D-dimer levels, they, they're the clotting ones, man. They 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 got the PEs, they got those the clots in the legs, they clotted. Um and you're you're hundred percent right. Fibrin, you know, I would agree with everything you said. Um so we 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 used I've been using NATO and seropeptidase and other systemic enzymes for 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 years. And um I started off using 
at the beginning for COVID, when I realized this was a blood clotting disorder, I started putting people on natal right off the bat, man, when they were sick. And if they had a risk of clotting, they were on natal. Um, and I didn't do that at the very beginning until I thought it through and, you know, before. But once I saw the clotting stuff and the PEs and, you know, things, you know, I was using natal very freely. Now, I didn't use natal on everybody, but anyone who was more than mildly sick. The mildly sick ones, I just kind of treated with our basic protocol. And the moderately and severely sick, I put them all on natal. And um, I found that people did not clot through natal. Um, I found the ones who did clot, tremendous fibrinogen load, tremendous D-dimer quantitative numbers, you know, very high. And um, they required more, you know, longer periods, you know, and, and it, it, it was, um, it was rough and it was scary and it was, mm -hmm. but the cool thing was with that is you could follow those numbers of fibrinogen particularly and a D-dimer, you could follow those numbers down and just sort of correlate clinically with how they were doing. And I'm sure you saw the same thing with it. You know, they were fairly sick when it was fairly high. And then as they got better, you'd see this, this steady, mm -hmm. steady, steady, steady decline with it. And um, yeah, but what's interesting is we, I mean, you know, if the D-dimer was normal, but the fibrinogen was up, it was quite an interesting case because now you got someone who, you know, has got a normal D-dimer, but has levels of, you know, fibrinogen that are so high, even in someone like myself, you know, uh, sitting up at the like three mark, I've got it like well down now high, with high EPA DHA and taking your NATO and your seropeptidase. So it's, it's, I don't know if COVID has done this. I mean, I got the Delta variant and I didn't check my fibrinogen before that, but afterwards it was, it was significantly on the higher side of the range, which concerned me. My D9 was totally normal, but it stayed high for a long time. Now that, that is a worry. Is it the virus that caused that? You know, that caused that. I mean, I'm not vaccinated, so it wasn't that. If people had COVID and got vaccinated, normal D-dimers, but high fibrinogen. We saw the same thing. The worst the worst people were high both of them, high D-dimer and high fibrinogen. They were the worst. And you're right. The next the next group of people were these high fibrinogens with normal D-dimer. Now, the, the high fibrinogen, normal D-dimer, I didn't pick up many blood clots with them. I didn't pick up many PEs, many, you know, they, they were... They were you know, they were concerned, but they weren't as big a concern as the ones with both those yeah. levels high. And um, um, I've been checking fibrinogen levels as part of my basic blood work for, I don't know, 20 to 25 years, something like that. And um, so a healthy person generally does not have high fibrinogen levels. I mean, that's been my experience with it. And, you know, I've seen the same thing you've seen after covid with these high fibrinogen levels and slow to come down. And usually when people eat better, exercise, you know, and, you know, clean up, you know, the diet is such a huge, mm. huge missing thing for so many people. I mean, you look like you eat a pretty good diet, I'm guessing. Yeah, um, sure. And I mean, someone like myself, never missed a day's work in 24 years, you know, not to sickness or ill health, never struggled with my immune system at all. Very robust system. And yeah, I've got this high fibrinogen and it's taken a lot of work to bring it down. Three grams of EPA DHA every single day, you know, serious nature and serious and uh, seropeptidase. So it's, it's fascinating. How much iodine do you take? I take in the form of kelp. Uh, I don't know how much it works out to. All right. So here, here's it. Let me give you something. We can do another, we can do another talk. Yeah. Start on higher dose iodine. There's not enough in kelp. And remember, 
if the kelp is grown in a polluted area of the ocean, the kelp has sodium iodine symporter, which can be overrun with bromide or fluoride and kick out iodine, just like the human body. Um, I've never found kelp a great source because it's, it, I, years ago, I tested brands of kelp for iodine and bromide and the halides and different batches have different amounts of iodine. Some are high in bromide, some are, mm. it was mostly bromide and iodine, you know, interchangeable things, but the idea was so variable. And anyway, and my feeling is in our polluted world with so much bromide and fluoride around, you can't get enough iodine in sea products anymore to kick out enough bromide and fluoride to make the body healthy. So what I've, what I've found is that iodine can lower that fibrinogen level down, you know, higher dose iodine. Now, most of my patients coming into this illness we're on iodine. If they were previous patients of mine, they were already taking iodine because, you know, I probably have 90, I don't know, 95 to 99% of my patients on iodine. The only ones that aren't on it usually have a side effect with it, which aren't many, or I guess the ones who just kind of forget to take it after a while, but most people are on it. And How much are they taking? I'll tell you when I've given patients the iodine, it's affected their TSH, affected their thyroid. So I had to watch that TSH very carefully with the iodine. Okay. So I think that... I will remind you of your book. <laughs> well, well, the book, I'm looking for the chapter in that book. Yeah, it's yeah, chapter, yeah. Um, I think it's chapter six, but of that. Um, and a normal and expected response of giving people iodine who are iodine deficient is their TSH goes up. And it's not signifying hypothyroidism in the vast majority of people. Because if you check T3 and T4 levels, they're normal. Yeah. And, um, and you ask them how they're feeling, they'll tell you feeling usually feeling better from the iodine or feeling okay, feeling fine. You know, there's no complaints mm. of, you know, no increased complaints of hypothyroidism. Um, and what the TSH does is it stimulates sodium iodine symporter. So it, it, if you think about it, the thyroid gland, which sits here, weighs 1.5 ounces. It produces a teaspoon of thyroid hormone for a whole year. It can only produce that thyroid hormone if there's enough iodine. Now, in our pretty much the entire world, particularly if you look at the WHO statistics, you know, there's iodine deficiency throughout the entire world. And the more we over farm our fields and um, industrialize our food products, the more iodine deficient we become as a, as a people. So our iodine needs as a people now, 2023, is higher than what our parents and grandparents' iodine needs were in 1950 and 1960. Because um, they weren't exposed to so many toxins like we are now. In our modern, you know, all these, you know, all our modern con conveniences. And the world's more polluted now. So iodine concentrates in the thyroid gland. It concentrates in the breast, the ovaries, pancreas, uterus, you know, all the other glandular tissue as well. And... So the body has set up an, an intricate, intricate mechanism to concentrate iodine against the gradient. It requires an ATP molecule to do that. It requires magnesium to do that. And um, so iodine can go from higher in the blood to lower in the thyroid via this, this sodium iodine support. It's like a taxi cab that moves it across the cell membrane. It's an energy-dependent process, so you use an energy molecule to do that. Um there's, when when you're low on iodine, if and generally my you know I don't know how South African soil is. The U.S. soil is really low on iodine. Um, 
Well, I think yeah. it'll be even worse. You know, we had Zach Bush out here saying we're the number one glyphosate used in the world, more than the states. So, so um, when the human body, we were not designed. We were designed pretty darn well. You know, not complaining about our design. Well, you know, I might complain about knees. We should have had better design in our knees that they, you know, we can do. Should be able to do hard sports to our old age without screwing up our knees. But anyways. <laughs> um, we're not. We're designed pretty well, and we we're, what we're not designed to do is leave these taxi cabs, these sodium iodine importers, just idling on the membrane of the thyroid, waiting for iodine to come to put it in there. If there's no iodine, those importers go away, and we just function in a hypo in a in a low iodine state. And luckily, we're designed to survive a low iodine state. And you know, it's been through 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 mankind, humankind's existence. If you look at some of those. We were in Italy right before the crisis, and you know, I remember walking through the Vatican and looking at all those old paintings. You could see all these goiters in these women, um, in in their old paintings, you know, from time of Christ, you know, so twenty three hundred years ago. Um, so, you know, it, iodine deficiency and goiter has been known to occur in human existence probably since the beginning of humans. I you know I don't know exactly when, but um. um when you take iodine, the first thing the body does is have to make more taxi cabs, sodium iodine importers, to move that iodine into the thyroid, into the breasts, into the ovaries, into the uterus, into the prostate, the pancreas, and wherever else it needs to go. And so what stimulates those taxi cabs to be made is TSH. So it is normal and it's expected in someone who's iodine deficient when they take iodine and, and, and I don't want to use the word high amounts because I don't think it's high amounts. I think it's sufficient amounts, but in higher amounts of iodine, that TSH will go up in order to stimulate these symporters to be produced. Once enough iodine gets in the thyroid, the ovaries, uterus, breast, prostate, pancreas, TSH comes down. And it takes about, in the average person, three to six months. So many people misinterpret that TSH as I'm making them hypothyroid. It's iodine-induced hypothyroidism. Well, all you got to do is ask the patients, how do you feel? No, look. Some people don't feel good with vitamin C. Some people don't feel good with magnesium. Some people feel lousy when they drink water. But some people do feel lousy when they drink when they take iodine too. They're, they're, in my experience, it's, it's a very when it, iodine is used as part of a holistic treatment regimen with enough salt in in you know coming in with it that the side effects from iodine, which I think are related to bromine toxicity and bromine being released and and fluoride probably being released, that they get overloaded. That that just doesn't happen, and the vast majority of people feel better. We have, we have, uh, I believe, six practitioners in my office right now seeing patients, and the vast majority of our patients are on iodine. If we were causing this massive hypothyroid yeah. or Hashimoto's epidemic in our practice, a we'd be out of business, and b we'd be hearing about it patient after patient. We don't hear about it because our patients seem to do pretty well with it. So it is normal and expected for iodine to cause TSH to rise. You follow T3 and T4 levels. You see your patients back, ask them how they feel, do an exam. And um, assuming that they don't have signs of worsening whatever illness they're having yeah. or new onset hypothyroidism, it's, you just have to wait for that TSH to come down. Now, the, all the literature... How does that help with the fibrinogen then? Having given so, iodine. You know what? I'm not quite certain of the mechanism how it helps with fibrinogen, but I can tell you that because um, I've done this, I've done this on people where I have them um, 
if they were on iodine going into COVID, my instructions were double your iodine. I didn't care what dose they were taking, just double it. If they weren't on iodine, I put them on 25 milligrams. That was our protocol orally for it. So when I did a, you know, when I, when we drew blood on the patients, you know, and, and I didn't draw it on every patient, certainly, um, I don't do that now, but you know, you'd see these high fibrinogen levels. And as soon as I hit them double, I, look, we did this with other things because they were told them no sugar. We told them to drink water. We told them to take vitamin A and D, but their fibrinogen did come down. And I did attribute, did think I've, I think I attributed a lot of that fibrinogen coming down to just iodine that there seemed to be some effect with iodine with it. I don't I really don't know the mechanism to tell you just an observation with it. Fantastic. Let's let's move on to ferritin. There's been a lot of, I've been doing functional medicine now, 16 years. This seems to be quite a contentious issue. Uh, the numbers, I had Morley Robin, Robbins on my podcast and looking at numbers of ferritin, and he's saying the ideal ratio is 20 to 50. I was keeping women in between 50 and 80 and, and men between like 90 and 120. It seems like ferritin is less important and the use of copper, I'm measuring serum copper now. Uh, it looks like uh, serum copper being the master and the captain uh, of ferritin and ferritin being the foot soldier, that two high levels of ferritin are causing significant uh, oxidative stress in the body, uh, causing significant problems with liver enzymes like GGT. What is your your view on ferritin? I, I tell you what happened to my ferritin went from like one hundred and fifty down to about seventy after COVID. You know, I had the Delta. It took me a couple of days, and and I was, you know, over the weekend I was fine. I was strong. Never actually, it was like a normal head cold for me. But what's your view on ferritin? What's happened to ferritin with COVID, and and where do you keep your patients' levels at? Those are those are all very very good questions stuff that I think about too. And, um, you know, we, we, we know as, as practitioners, ferritin is an acute phase reactant, which means it can go up when there's inflammation in the body. And it doesn't necessarily mean, so ferritin is a, is a measure of iron storage. And, um, so when ferritin levels are high, those physicians that are only checking ferritin levels will say, might say you have too much iron. Well, that's not, if you don't check the other iron indices, you don't know that that's the case. So I never draw ferritin alone. I draw ferritin with total iron binding capacity, iron total, and uh, percent saturation. And then you you get a better picture. Is this is this ferritin elevation or is this secondary to iron overload? Um, so there's a lot of people that suffer with iron overload. And um, I diagnose that very frequently in my practice. And frequently have patients phlebotomizing, um, and whether you want to call them hemochromatosis or not, which is a genetic disease for iron overload, doesn't matter. You know, I see a lot of, I see 10 people have iron overload for one hemochromatosis. So they have the same problem, too much iron and it clogs, clogs, you know, makes the blood thick, more likely to clot. And it can cause, you know, organ problem, you know, in the kidneys and the liver and the heart. Um, so it is important. And ferritin, I agree with you, the relationship between ferritin and copper. Um, I, you know, I, it's interesting with COVID I've been checking serum copper and plasma zinc levels. I, it's just part of a routine that I do for new patient blood tests. And once a year I do it on all my patients because I want to see copper levels higher and than zinc levels. And what I found during COVID, because 
so many groups were talking about zinc as an ionophore and zinc to be used with um, hydroxychloroquine. Um, and, um, you know, you, you, you heard from first the holistic practitioners and then really the regular doctors were all promoting zinc, 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 zinc. So everyone starts taking zinc, 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 zinc. What I, what I started to see was instead of levels like this, my patients, I started getting this, you know, I, I would tell them you're zinc overloaded. Now, um, I can't tell you I saw any big, there's no syndrome that I've seen. You can get zinc toxic. And I didn't see anyone get levels like that. But I did see um, some subtle shifts in the immune system when the zinc levels were too high and the copper levels were too low. I would see slightly lowered white blood cell count. I'd see, I'd see lymphocytes up, neutrophils down, just a little bit. They were still in the reference range. And if you weren't looking for it, you weren't going to see it. And I, I also would observe that patients who have this seem to get more frequent viral infections. And they were, they were getting hit a little more frequently with, you know, I, I mean, I can't tell you they were hit more frequently with COVID because we weren't really checking for it. And we were treating viral infections, whether you had COVID or RSV or mm. it didn't really matter to us, you know, what you had. We treated it the same way. But um, my, my treatment for that was to have them stop taking zinc. And I put them on copper for, if the copper levels weren't too low, copper for a month or two and let that copper come up and restore itself to the balance. And you'd see the white blood cells shift again. Um, and the neutrophils come up and the lymphocytes come down. And they just didn't, you know, they would stop getting their frequent illnesses. Um, so in regards to iron, I agree with you. I think copper is really important. We know copper is really important for the immune system and for white blood cells. Um, and it's a, now you can get copper overloaded too. Women taking birth control pills frequently have high copper levels and low zinc levels. And instead of like this, they're like, I can't, you know, you can't see them in my hand. Copper's way up here and zinc is way down here. They don't, you know, they're not feeling well when that's the case either. So at that point, for women on birth control pills, you know, I really find it difficult to get that restored, that balance restored, unless they stop birth control pills. Um, those women I would put on zinc and not copper. But um, um, that just doesn't seem to restore itself very easily unless they come off birth control pills. So there, there's a huge correlation with that. And um, um, look, all these metals, you know, zinc, um, iron, copper, are, you know, it's just so incredibly important to have adequate amounts and have them in the proper balance. And um, when these things become out of balance, man, people don't do well. And, you know, iron... As you mentioned earlier, you know, iron is very oxidizing in the body. You know, look at our cars, you know, especially if you live near the ocean. You know, they rust out really easily because, the, you know, the iron just, that salt, you know, sets in motion the oxidation process of iron. And, and um, you know, you start rusting out. And we can rust out in our bodies when that happens. Um, so tell me, Doc, then what levels are you keeping at Ferritin? Because this is something that's very debatable, you know. I mean, the levels got to 400. I mean, I think it's from, say, 20 to 400, the levels and, and the range here in South Africa. And so many people, 155 podcasts I've done and, and spoke to a lot of functional medicine docs. Uh, there's a lot of confusion at what levels ferritin should be at because of, of the effect, how important it is in the immune system. You know, speaking to the Thomas Levy's of the world, speaking to Molly Robbins, uh, listening to Dr. McCullough, what he's saying about iron, keeping his iron levels at like 37 or 40 
Previously, you had like 80, 90, 150. I mean, these are significant changes. Doing phlebotomies like at least four times a year as often as you can. Uh, it seems, well, you know, it's important. So it's, those are all really good questions. And um, so before we get to what levels, I will tell you, we do a lot of phlebotomies in our practice. We diagnose a lot of iron overload. You, ferritin should be checked with an iron panel, the other three iron tests that I talked about earlier, period. So if you're not doing that, you don't, you know, what's doesn't matter what the level of ferritin is. You don't really know whether it's high because of an, uh, an inf inflammation somewhere in the body or there's too much iron. So, so whenever I check ferritin, I check the other iron indices. So having said that, um, I don't really look at ferritin as a single number. I look at ferritin in conjunction with the other iron indices. And so if the other iron indices are in pretty good shape, and what I mean by pretty good shape is I'll take the median of TIBC percent saturation. And I wish I had a lapse up in front of, you know, a number thing in front of me right now. Um, you know what? Hang on. This, well, I'll keep talking, but I'm going to, let me see if I can get it on my mouse. Because I do have normal, I have reference ranges from the lab. No, let me pull up mine because it's quite interesting. This thing. I have it. I have it here too. I think it's on my desktop. Go for it. Go for it. And um, I can't minimize them. All right, I can't. I can't see it when I got you one. Um, so, so if the TIBC percent saturation and iron total are sort of around the median range of each of those each of those reference ranges, so the median is you take add the lower number plus a higher number and divide by two. Yeah. And then if that ferritin, I don't get wiggy about the ferritin. When the other numbers are in line and the ferritin, you're not going to see a ferritin of five when everything else is in the median. You might see a ferritin of, I'm just going to freestyle here with you, but you might see a ferritin of 20, 25. I don't consider that low in that patient. Now, if a ferritin is 20 and the percent saturation is 10% and the TIBC is high. Um, you know, the numbers, I, I don't have the ranges right here, but the TIBC is high and the total iron is low, then that's a low ferritin level. Um, and they need iron, and I will push it up to get those other numbers up there, and then the ferritin falls where it may fall. I don't get so hyped up on the ferritin. Well, I remember 30 years ago, I saw um, a couple lectures, you know, and Ferritin should be at 100. That was, you know, ferritin should be at 100. And um, there's a prominent lecturer right now who, who still talks about that. And look, I can tell you in these young menstruating women, their ferritin ain't getting to 100 no matter what you do. And they're menstruating every month. They're losing blood. And they a lot of them feel pretty good with ferritins of 30, 20, you know, maybe 25. Um, and I don't, I don't get caught up in what that number should be. I don't think ferritin should be in the over 100 in anybody. Um, I don't phlebotomize them when they're 150 or maybe 120, as long as those other iron indices aren't too high. Um, but I think it's I think it's a big slog in the mud to try and keep everyone's ferritin at 70, at 80, at 90, 100. And I don't think that slog has to happen if you're checking the other levels and sort of correlating it together. And you know, I, 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 I said it at the beginning of this, but if, if those other levels are okay, you ain't going to see a ferritin of five, which is really low. 
and it's just not going to be there because the iron storage is going to be up a little bit. It might be 20, might be 25, which is still a little on the low side. My feeling is with the other iron indices normal, ferritin will catch up or it's just where it is. And um, I do, I did find during COVID, if you check ferritin levels, man, some of those ferritins were really high, you know, 500, 600, 1,000. And those people were sick. And they were clotting. And, you know, it wasn't ferritin that was clotting them. It was just, it was just a... Um, Ferritin was that blinking red light saying something's wrong, something's wrong, mm-hmm. something's wrong. When you got the inflammation down, that came down with it. Yeah. But um, I think that um, it's a useful number, but I think it's only useful if you're checking the other numbers with it and thinking about the whole iron panel as sort of one one being and not just ferritin alone over here. Brilliant. Well, Doc, tell me about uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. What's going to happen? Is there going to be a change sort of in the medical system? Is there going to be a change in sort of political governance. I know you guys are friends and uh, you wrote that brilliant book called The Real Anthony Fauci. Uh, just, you know, give us, I mean, give us some hope from, because I think a lot of this has been driven politically. Give you hope. Yeah, okay. and, and, yeah, it's just politically driven more than medically driven. I mean, I understand a lot of the doctors are not open to functional medicine or open to holistic medicine, but a lot of this was driven through political means and political control. Uh, enslavement to to systems, to big pharma and, and to big medicine, what I call big, you know, hospital groups and that. So uh, let us know what he's saying. I know you guys probably talk uh, because you can give us the inside track of, of what's happening because a lot of, you know, the countries follow the U.S. and, and what you guys are doing and, and how you guys are shaping. Well, I don't know how many countries are following us anymore after what we've done through this crisis. That's, that's, we've lost our credibility through this, mm-hmm. but... Um, so you get to hear the whole story of RFK, which I'll make it quick here. But Allison and I have followed RFK Jr. since before he got involved in this whole mercury and vaccine thing. Um, when he was an environmental lawyer for water keepers. And his his he was his whole mantra through the we started following him around 1990 or so. But his mantra from the 1990s up until he formed Children's Health Defense in the 2000s somewhere, was every lake in the U.S. is polluted with mercury from coal burning and from other other sources, but coal burning was a big one, and that therefore the fish are polluted, and that's wrong, and we should hold polluters accountable, and we should clean up our water supply. So we were donating money, you know, what we could yearly, and then when he formed Children's Health Defense, which I don't know the year he formed it, we made a big donation right away. Because, you know, that, that this was right up my alley, man. This, I was already in, talking about vaccines and mercury and vaccines before, you know, I, w- I was talking about it in the 90s. And um, so he called me when we made that donation to thank me. And we exchanged phone numbers and became friendly at that time. And, you know, I would text him here and there and he'd text me back. And then I, I, um, I was setting up through the International College of Integrative Medicine, a vaccine conference. And I wanted to do a conference on childhood vaccines. This was before COVID. So this was about 2000. So it was 19, no, I mean, uh, 2017 or so. Like, you know, got the permission from my board of directors, which I was on to set up this conference. And so they said, how long, you know, let's do the next conference, which was a year away. I'm like, no, 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 I need two and a half to three years. Why do you need so long? because I'm going to get RFK to headline it. And he's probably really busy. 
he's not going to have anything on his schedule two and a half to three years out. I'll, I'll, you know, that was my take. So fine. They gave me three years from when we agreed to do it, which fell into September of 2020. So, so in, in, in 2017, I called RFK, Hey, I'm going to put on this vaccine conference. Will you headline it? And, um, he said, well, I've got nothing on my schedule for three years. Yeah, I'll headline it. I said, all right, the only stipulation is Allison and I have to take you out to dinner the night before. And he agreed. So now we're moving into 2020. The conference is coming and then COVID starts. So I was posting all my you know, patient interviews and what we were doing in our practice and how people were doing better. And I would interview the patients and I was posting articles and my comments on it. And then I get a letter from the Federal Trade Commission, which is part of the U.S. government. I get two days later, I get a notice from the State Board of Medicine. I'm under investigation. And shortly after that, I get a notice from my med school that I went to that they were squawking. And um, so I posted the the Federal Trade Communication letter on my website and um, said I was taking all my the Federal Trade Communication said there's no treatment prevention or cure for COVID. Therefore, any mention of such falls in violation of federal code, blah, 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 blah. Either you remove everything you wrote about that within 48 hours, or you're going to hear from the U.S. Justice Department. And um, so, you know, we, we, I posted that letter. We didn't, we were stunned, you know, here I was doing what I was taught to do was treat people who were sick instead of closing my office and Telling them I'll talk to them virtually and do an exam on them and whatever. And so we posted this letter and put a little personal note saying, I think I'm going to take my website down. And two people called me. RFK called me and Del Bigtree called me. And they both said, you need to talk to Aaron Seary. And Aaron Seary is a constitutional lawyer who was suing the FDA for things before COVID. And then he's, as COVID came, he really started suing the U.S. government to get data and get information and get them to release things. So we called Aaron Siri and he ba- he did a little research on what they were charging me with. And he basically told me, and, and so did RFK. They told me, hey, it's a good law because the law was to prevent false advertising, you know, and this is a cure for cancer. This is a cure for yeah. something, you know, really isn't. And he said, but they're misapplying the law to you. And they, all three of them told me the same thing. So basically we were, we were advised to take everything down. If you want to fight them, we, we hired a first amendment lawyer after spending a lot of money. He said to us, I'll, I'll, I'll take the case. It'll probably go to the Supreme court. I don't know if you'll win or lose, but I need a $10 million retainer. Wow. And I'm like, you know, well, I'm on a Zoom like with you, and I'm like, exactly. hey, I don't have money. Yeah, I made the money, and he's he. So now four of them are telling us the same thing: just take everything down, see if it goes away, and if they if they come after you, then you we'll figure it out. You know, you have to do something different. So we took everything down, you know, and we complied, which is what they you know wanted us to do, and um, so RFK came, did that conference. We had our dinner the night before, and. My experience, that was the first time we met face-to-face. My experience with him is um, he's the smartest person I've ever met in my life. He can talk about so many things off the cuff. He He's really charismatic, and he's the real deal. And 
Um, he understands the issues of censorship and um, fascism and and corporatos corporatoscity or whatever that word is. Um, you know, corporate and government join hands and you know basically enslave us. And um, I think he can bring real change to to what we need to do. And um, and I think that um, they're trying to censor him, but I don't think it's going to work. Not not in today's world with the internet and people not trusting media right now and not trusting big government and um, looking for a solution. And at least here, I can tell you, because we're in a presidential election year, there ain't nobody here who wants Trump versus Biden again. And we want to change. And so I think, I think he'll offer it to us. I think he's the right guy to do it. And um, I think that, um, you know, one of the things I commented after we, you know, we, we, had dinner and we took him back to his hotel room and we're walking back to our hotel before the lecture the next morning. I said to Allison, as soon as we left him, I said, it's like, he's made a steal. Like he, I asked him a question at dinner and I said, um, aren't you sorry you took this topic on vaccines? You know, basically he goes, what, what topic? I said, vaccines. Why? Well, look at all the criticism you've received. You, your, your relatives have written op-eds against you in the New York times and, and elsewhere. And, he said, you know, David, I'm in the right place. I'm at the right time. I'm doing what I should be doing. I know it in my heart. They'll come around. They're just misguided right now. Sure. And he said, are you sorry you took it on? And I said, no, I'm not sorry I took it on. Um, but I, I said, do you feel stress over it? And he goes, no, I don't feel any stress over it. He goes, do you? And I'm like, yeah, I feel stress over it. And, I, you know, my, my take from that was that, the guy's made a steal. He he's he's really he's really tough, and um, he can handle the criticism. And um, he's super smart. He will he would be a wicked debater to debate against. And um, he's not emotional about the topic. He's just sort of very rational and very one plus one is two, and just yeah. talks about the topic as he sees it. And he's very uh, committed to it. And he's. Um, He's the right guy for what we need right now. That's my view. And I, I've never felt, you know, I, I told Allison, well, you know, Allison, I've never donated to a political candidate. I never wanted to get involved in that stuff. And, you know, it's all just ugly to me. And it always has been. This is the first time we've sent money to a political candidate and that I've actually been excited over. And um, I think that uh, he's what we need right now. And maybe, you know, look, people used to look up to us as a country and, you know, look what we've done and you know, we can lead you know, the world and civil rights and, you know, at least hopefully you know, promote it and things like that. We've lost it all after COVID. I, I feel like, you know, who the hell's going to look up to us? And I think part of, part of we're seeing this chaos in the world and there's just chaos everywhere. There's violence everywhere. Mm -hmm. People are not talking nice everywhere. And we've just lost our way as a people. And the part of it is we don't have strong enough leaders that have a good vision and a good good energy and a good focus of where we need to go. And he could give all that to us. Mm -hmm. And um, um, I'm hopeful that he can, for lack of better words, catch fire as candidates can catch fire. And I think it will. And I think it's, mm -hmm. I think it's people are, people are just hungry for this right now. And, you know, yeah. he, knowing him personally, if anyone could do this, it's RFK Jr.
Well, that is a bit uh, giving us some hope there, uh, Dr. Brownstein. And uh, if there's any ever chance that uh, you can come on the Made to Thrive show and you get any glimpse ever, I'd really appreciate that. But, uh, you know, for South Africa and just what, uh, you know, the WHO brought upon us and the following of sort of medical uh, interventions in this country, you guys are still leading in many ways. I know you might see in this chaos and people have lost hope, but you're still affecting many countries internationally and how medicine gets practiced, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, because so much great has come out of uh, America with regards to interventions. But I want to just uh, once again declare favor and blessing upon you and, and thank you for your time and, and your courage and just your continual learning that, you, that you've that uh, you been done over so many years and how many lives you've impacted. Honestly, uh, I, I do think of you every day. I'm going to Look at the iodine and uh, possibly add that to my protocol. Right. And uh, so we got to talk after you start using iodine. We got to talk. You're going to see the good results, but use it as part of a holistic protocol. Make sure that you use salt with iodine, like a teaspoon or two a day with 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 the iodine, which will help usher out bromide and fluoride that get loosened up, you know, from competitive inhibition. And then you shouldn't see. I mean, you might see some negative effects, but there shouldn't be many of them, and they should be manageable. And very, very few patients can't take iodine in the, in the doses I'm talking about. Um, okay. So let's talk after you get some experience with that. We'll talk again. And I love doing this interview with you, Steve. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Made to Thrive show. New episodes are released weekly and are published exclusively on the Made to Thrive podcast link. If you're interested in receiving more thriving insights, as well as receiving other exclusive member benefits, visit madetothrive.co.za forward slash subscribe. This podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they have and they should seek the assistance of healthcare professionals for any such conditions. Mm -hmm.